Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Peyton Manning. Peyton. Love Peyton. Uh, still a big fan of Peyton. Sure. Uh, Steve McNair. My mom was very strict. You know, very direct with stuff. When well, my dad kind of gave me a pass with a lot of things, as long as I was yeah. playing baseball. Yeah. Few of us can do what professional athletes do. And even fewer athletes begin their pro careers with the immediate success of my guests today. I'll talk with former pitcher Dwight Gooden to hear about his historic rookie season in 1984 and how his major league career was affected by his struggles with drugs and alcohol. But first, Andrew Luck, currently enjoying his second season in the National Football League. With the first pick in the 2012 NFL Draft, the Indianapolis Colts select Andrew Luck. Luck was hired to replace one of his heroes, Peyton Manning, as quarterback of the Indianapolis Colts. Many doubted that the Stanford graduate could live up to the enormous hype generated by that first-round pick. But Luck delivered setting a new NFL record for most passing yards by a rookie. Andrew Luck, a self-described nerd, is nothing if not level-headed when he talks about navigating the transitions from high school to college to pro football. There are definitely large differences along the way, but, but I also know a lot of the challenges are the same. I think fresh on my mind still, you know, finishing a rookie year, you know, what, what, what was similar about rookie year, to being a sophomore in high school and starting on varsity, you know, once to, to, to being in college and starting as a sophomore as well. I think, you know, the same things present itself. How as a young kid, you know, how as a 15-year-old kid do you play with 18-year-olds? How as a, how as a 19-year-old kid do you play with 22-year-olds? Is that what you did? And, yeah. And how was it? it? It's weird. You know, you want to me. Hey, what do you remember about high school ball? So I, I just wanted to keep my mouth shut. <laughs> you were in Houston. In Houston, which... They do have like a, somewhat of a religious cult following, you know, of, of high school football in Texas. It is Friday Night Lights there. It, it, it truly is, and you know, it's sensationalized a bit with the movies and the in the books. But uh, 
people get into it. I mean, we had we had fifteen thousand people watching games you know, for 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 a bunch of high, high school, school kids. Yeah, but but I do remember you know being a rookie, thinking back to you know being a sophomore. Like, how, how do you how do you earn the respect of the guys older than you? You know how do you how do you go in there and. So would you say confidence. that's a theme? Each step of the way through is proving yourself to yeah. people who, when you show up, the vets are there or the guys who have a few more seasons under their belt, and you want to show them you belong there. No, absolutely. I think uh, describe what it was like when you went from Houston to Stanford. Same thing. Uh, you know, one, it's it's it was it was fun for me to be out in California, and, and you were a scholar. You did very well in school. I, I I did all right. I managed to get by. Uh, I studied architecture, which was fun for me, and I, which I enjoyed. Which you know, I'm much better. I think on projects than writing papers. You know, so so I. I'm glad I studied something I enjoyed, but uh, do you think that that kind of pursuit academically, like something that involves uh, geometry and math and so forth and measurements, helped you as a quarterback? I don't know. People have asked me to compare the two, and I, you know, I, it can't hurt, but I, you know, I, realistically, how much could could solid a math problem help at a, a football game? It might be just intrinsic how you just see things, you know. When uh, that guy's going deep is. over the middle, maybe you're sitting there going, "This, is, <laughs> this looks like the Louvre to me." <laughs> And then when you went to Stanford, what was that like? You showed up there. When you talk about that idea of showing up and proving yourself, yeah. what was it like for you? First year was great. Didn't play. Redshirted, which was, which was, which was difficult. Describe for people exactly how redshirting works. Yeah, so redshirting is a process where you, know, you, you go to school and everybody has four years of eligibility to play. Right. Uh, but you, you can redshirt a year. You, you still practice with the team. You still do everything with the team. You're just not allowed to play in a game. So it's theoretically you can so buy you another year. Yeah, and then you go to school for you know be in school for five years. So it gives you a year to. And you redshirted your first year. I redshirted my first year. To, Why? To, uh, I wasn't ready to play, right. uh, and I uh, needed to get bigger, faster, stronger. You know, physically wise, and also mentally, just catch up to the. So when to you come game. to a school like that, when they take you there, mm-hmm. and they and they they recruited you, correct? Yes, they did. And when they recruit you to come, they recruit you. The, the redshirt thing was something they had in mind. So at that level, at the Stanford level, they have you come and they say, "We're going to bring you here, and we're just going to develop you for the first year." Yeah, the, the, you know, and some guys in my class were, were good enough to play, you know, as freshmen. But but I know in my recruiting process that that was a thought that came up. You they know, wanted you to muscle shirt. up and get stronger. Yeah, and and, and, and mentally too. I think mentally right. catch up to to a playbook, having to learn that, and it, it, it definitely helped, and, and I enjoyed it. And now, what was that experience like? Because someone said that to me once. They said that you know you go from high school and you're a dominant player in yeah. high school, then you go to college and you're in a room full of high school dominant <laughs> players. Yeah, it's humbling. It's humbling. <laughs> I'll say that when you get knocked off your high horse very very quickly. True. Everybody's an all star. You go from being the you know the, the, the top dogs, probably yeah. starting on every. You're the king back every, home. Yeah, everything you've ever played in, the cheerleaders want to date you. You know, yeah. everybody. You go to college and you're just a, now you're, you're carrying just, somebody, somebody else's bag. <laughs> exactly. So you redshirt that year, and then you come back the second year, and I'm assuming you were stronger and you had developed, mm-hmm. and did you, and you felt better, you felt stronger. No, I think I put on like 20, 25 pounds, you know, uh, and, and, and my mind was working much quicker when it, you know, on the right. football side of things. You were getting ready, getting ready, and, and then, what happens in that second year? Uh, Coach Harbaugh, who's 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 coaching the game, Jim, he gave me a shot. Got got to play in all the games. I got hurt in the last game of the season. And did you get smacked around a lot? I mean, you're playing football at Stanford. What was that like for you? The, that threat every day, and is it pure adrenaline where you say to yourself, "I can't think about that. I can't afford to think about that." Or every minute you're out there, do you think these guys, man, they really if they hit me, it's really going to hurt my like <laughs> No, I think you, you can't. You can't let yourself think about you getting hit. You have to. I think as soon as you start 
getting skittish about about yeah. being hit, then then your play is going to plummet. Yeah, there's a little bit of pride involved in it too. I think as a football player, at least at least in my mind, I sort of enjoy getting hit every now and then and, and being able to stand back up and yeah. say, yeah, "Okay, you hit me, whatever, man." You know, yeah, I'm getting back up. It's, you didn't knock me down, Ray, <laughs> yeah. as they say in Raging Bull. <laughs> you didn't get me down, Ray. So, so there, I think I think for a lot of players, there's a, there's a bit of that. What did Harbaugh uh, give you as a coach? What would you say distinguished him as a coach? I think he builds great relationships with players, everybody on the staff, and, and, he, and he's, a, he's an unbelievable motivator. On game day, you always felt like you know the, the guy was going to you know, run through hell and back with you if you had to. You right. felt like you had your back. You trusted you, oh, him. If you wanted to be in a brawl in, a, in an alley, you wanted, you wanted Coach Harbaugh with you. What's it like when you leave Stanford? Because you, 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 yeah. you redshirted your first year, then mm-hmm. played four, and you finished at Stanford. Yeah, I, I played. You didn't leave. Three years, so I graduated. I, I had one year of eligibility left. And, but, and, you did, and, and it was time to go. Uh, it was time to How go. How did you know it was time to go? Uh, you know, my degree. I, I got you my had, degree. Exactly. It, was, it was really yeah. didn't make any sense to stay. Yeah, it didn't. I had, a, I had enough fun. <laughs> and then <laughs> what happens? And then, uh, Tell me where you're sitting when, the, when you find out what's going on for you NFL-wise. How does that develop? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's actually sort of a long process. And I, I was drafted before I graduated right. school. So you, you finish your college season. I took a, we were on the quarter system at Stanford. So I took the winter quarter off to go train and prepare. They, they have a combine. Uh, which where in, in Indianapolis, which you know, was funny enough, was where I ended up. The combine is it, a, a really interesting, weird sort of dynamic where they fly all these players in. They have all the coaches, they have all the team doctors, and it's three days. Of and like, you're their pick. And were you not, picked yeah, by them? Not no, yet. No, okay, no, no, this is before. So this is a chance for all the teams to meet the players to, to see. So the combine is NFL wide. It's not just Indy. It's it's it's, te- it's, it's league wide. It's league. All the teams fly into Indy it, with all it. their personnel. They all stay, and then the players sort of cycle through. It's we're like cattle in a meat market. Yeah. yeah. And I remember you know walking up on stage with nothing but my little skimpies on. Yeah. And they they, they announce you know Andrew the Victoria's Lock. Secret uh, <laughs> uh, runway yeah, show. Exactly. If you're you're on a you're on a stage with with strength coaches, head coaches. And all these coaches sitting in bleachers around you. They, they, you walk up in the middle, and, and there's you know Andrew Luck, Stanford University, you know six four two thirty five. And guys are there with pads, going, I don't like the ratio of his thigh muscles to his rib cage. Write that down, Ray. God, I don't God. like that. Rib, I don't like that rib thigh ratio. God knows what they're saying up there. God knows. And then you turn around and you and you walk off. Yeah. And that's just one of the you know guys where you're getting hundred X-rays on every part of your body. They, no. they, they move your, your your knee this way. Your, your so you're like an astronaut. Way. But which which makes sense because there's so much money invested of by course, these teams in and the, the modern players. world. Yeah. yeah. So so that was an interesting experience. Then you sort of then you leave the combine, and, and I had a I had a fairly good sense that I would be drafted number one by Indianapolis, uh, just from the signals I was getting from the team and, and, and other things, and managed to you know. How did you know, feel? I mean, you knew it was going to happen, kind of. I, it was, I did. It was everybody yeah. let you know that in advance. Everybody, the cat's out of the bag. But when it happens, the moment it happens, did you just feel great? You were number one in the draft that year, man. Yeah, I, I felt on top of the world. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. Now, as soon as you, uh, you uh, the draft is over, I would assume there's a euphoria, but you snap right out of it because like, it's down to business now. Yeah, there was a euphoria. And then I wish it would, it would have been down to business. I had to go back to school and finish up. And you'd try sitting in a lecture. You know, after you've been <laughs> you've been drafted by a team, you have a job. You know where you're going. I, I you're honestly, up, I, I honestly know. don't feel sorry for you because I would. I can't think of anything I'd like more than to go back to Stanford, having been the number one draft in the NFL. So you go back. How long are you back there? Back for maybe a couple more months to finish that last to finish quarter. Up. And so now, when do you report? Uh, so we report 
late July was when training camp starts, when, you know, the actual... That's the formal training the camp. The formal training camp. So you camp. show up for your first pro training camp. Now you are in the center ring. It ain't high school. It ain't college. It ain't Big Ten. It ain't... The, it's professional football. What's that like? I mean, does your ass tighten just a little bit when you're there? <laughs> I puckered up a bit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I puckered up a These bit. guys are huge. They are. They are the apex of physical freaks. You know, there, there are some guys that... that are 300 pounds that are running faster, you know, running... Than your high school running back. Yeah, that are just that are just absolutely physical. And, you know, some of the guys, you walk in the longer room, you're, you're playing with 35-year-olds, 36-year-olds, with, with, you know, with three kids in a, in a house and, you know, a bunch of rookies are 22, 23 years old that, you know, don't know right from left. Yeah. Uh, so so it's, it's, it's a different dynamic than college where you're sort of... Well, everybody's appearing with your yeah with with your your buddies. You're going back to the dorm. You, you know you're hanging out, and the NFL it's different, which makes it fun when you win and come together as a team. You know because you, you really do have so many different types of guys. And I would imagine that your teammates. I mean, on one hand, people in the pro like if you go to college, it's assumed uh, under under ordinary circumstances, certainly things can change. But under ordinary circumstances, you're going to be there for the four years. Yeah. This is your team. This mm-hmm. is your this is your family. Yeah. But in the pros where people move on, where the teams have uh, only uh, – their loyalty to the players only extends so far, yeah. do you walk in there and people feel you out and you earn your way into that family? Or do they treat you like family and everybody coheses right away? No, it, it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen in the first day. I will say the guys – People got to get to know you? Yeah, you got to get – you know, especially during training camp where you're going to have – uh, you know, a hundred guys that are in training camp, and then one day you, you wake up and look, and there's only fifty three guys left. Yeah, you know, those cut days are very sad days because yeah. you see buddies go, you see guys you built relationships. You know, go. guys you admired, maybe. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Guys you looked up to, guys that helped you out. You know, when you first walked in the door, and then they're gone, and that fifty three players. That's when everything starts to cohese. Yeah, I think I think that's when that's when you, you come together uh, a little more. But but still, you know, even guys are traded in the middle of the season. You know, guys are cut still. Guys are picked up. So it's it is it's a lot different. You know, to, as to what you said, uh, than than the you know, you know you're going to be in college for four years. You know who's in your class. You know who's you know you know the guys on the team. A lot of familiarity. Yes, absolutely. Now. One thing I think about when I think about the NFL is this idea of the biggest, strongest, fastest men hitting each other in this very violent game. Yeah. And the rules have been changed in order to protect players. The equipment has evolved, obviously. There's a lot of discussion about concussions and so forth over a lot of brain injury research and issues and people donating the brains of their deceased, suicide victims, a lot, a lot of heavy-duty stuff. Yeah. But I want to ask you, when you go out there, I mean, it's a competitive game and people want to win, but at the same time, guys don't necessarily want to hurt each other the way they yeah. wouldn't want to get hurt either. Do, do you find it's a weird balance of those two? Because football is as violent now on one hand as it was before, but because equipment changes and rule changes, yeah. it seemed more violent back then. Yeah. You know, I, I don't think guys are any less aggressive when it, when it comes to hitting. I do sure think, doesn't look that way. No, no, it doesn't. And I think... You know, maybe there's a thought too that all these these equipment changes and and, and and you feel safer in it, so so you feel like you can hit harder. But there's also, I think, you know, guys are, are being taught, especially at a young age now, too, you know, how to tackle correctly to to, to, to save your knee. neck. Yeah, yeah, how to how to and, and I think there is a mutual respect between players where you know you're not going to try and take out someone's Achilles or ACL. You know, 
But some guys maybe do. I, you know, I don't, I don't know. Some guys play very aggressive, and, and, and things happen. We understand. You know, we know what we sign up for, I think, when you, when you play football. And I, and I like it, and I love it. it. And as a quarterback, you know, I'm 99.99% on the wrong side of the hit. <laughs> you know, I, I don't ever get to, yeah. to dish it out, per se. But, you know, that, that's fine with me. Right. Let, let's talk about quarterbacking. Yeah. Let's talk about what it's like to uh, have that job where I, I played touch football with my friends until I was 40 years old. We played every weekend during a season in the fall in New York, yeah. in Central Park, and then that game moved to Los Angeles because almost all those guys I played with were my uh, uh, colleagues in the entertainment business. And, of course, the difference between a Sandlot game, the difference between a flag game and a bunch of geezers playing football, the difference between high school and college is the speed and the velocity yeah. of the game. And you drop back to pass, and on average, how much time do you have to throw the ball? I think a little, between three and four seconds. So you have that much time? If the play is in going... A, in a perfect long. world. <laughs> <In> a perfect, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so you have three to four seconds yeah. to, to, to read the defense, mm -hmm. to drop back and ascertain who you're going to throw the ball to, who's open, who's more likely going to be open. Because yep. sometimes you're throwing the ball to someone anticipating they're going to be open once the ball gets there. Yeah. You throw the ball to a spot mm -hmm. very, often, very often, unless it's a broken play and they come back to you. It's a comeback and then someone's improvising. Yes. What percentage of plays would you say do you throw the ball at a spot that's a preordained route and how many plays is it more improvised? What's the ratio? Well, well, every play is called, you know, hopefully not to have to improvise. Right. You know, you're going to call. But, but I, then uh, you're up against it, a pro defense. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it breaks down probably, you know, a third of the time. A third of the time, half of the time. Colts fans don't care about the ratio. They just want Andrew Luck to bring a championship back to Indianapolis. And he stands a good chance. People say he bears a strong resemblance to Peyton Manning, the quarterback for the Colts for 14 seasons, and one of Andrew Luck's own role models. Peyton commanded everything. Never was, quit. Yeah, never quit and was like a general out there. Got three minutes left. We're down by 18 <laughs> points. So what? So he seemed like he knew where everybody was going all the time. There's yeah, no surprises for him. In a minute, Andrew Luck talks about going to the Manning family training camp in Louisiana when he was 14. I'm Alec Baldwin, and here's the thing. Take a listen to our archive. More in-depth and honest conversations with artists, policymakers, and pundits like George Will. Sports, and particularly about baseball then, because of its rich sediment of numbers, was one of the first things a young person could peg up with adults on. That <laughs> is, you could know as much about Jimmy Fox as your father did. I love Jim, you know, I love uh, I wanted to be sport. a lifeguard. I wanted to be a gymnast. I wanted to work on the bars and trapeze work. <laughs> I loved all that stuff. More from George Will and Debbie Reynolds at heresthething.org. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. 
And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Andrew Luck grew up in a football family. His father was an NFL quarterback for the Houston Oilers. But Luck isn't always holed up in a screening room studying films of his football heroes in action. At the end of last season, he headed to the Sundance Film Festival. Growing up, he lived in London and Frankfurt, and he still travels overseas any chance he gets. But Andrew Luck knew early on that he wanted to play ball. He attended the Manning Passing Academy in Louisiana, run by NFL quarterbacks Peyton and Eli Manning and their father, Archie. So, you know, the, the Manning family, obviously, sort of the first family of quarterbacks. Of course. You know, in, in, the, in this league. Uh, you know, so I was in eighth grade in Houston, and uh, I went to the camp as a, as a camper. And it's held in... This was, this was held, Louisiana. it's in Louisiana, it used to be, I, Hammond, Louisiana was where I went as a, as a camper, and you stayed, stayed in these dorms, it looked like, like Soviet era, <laughs> like, uh, you know, old gray, you know, no AC, yeah. uh, you know, like, like a... Not in the a, summertime? Uh, yeah, in the no. summertime, oh, it was hot. So was, summer in Louisiana, and you're in the eighth hot. grade. Yeah, in the grade, living in these cinder blocks. This is one of the know, early <laughs> tests of your dorms. character. <laughs> yeah, exactly, but it, we had a blast, and I think I was on cloud nine when Archie Manning came up and oh said, how you God. doing, son? I played with your dad. And like, oh, you know, I'm in heaven. Oh, you know, my God. Shoot me now. <laughs> I, I've lived. And then then you, you, know, you, go to, you go to college, uh, whatever, and they invite all these college quarterbacks to come down and be counselors. And I think it's, it's a great thing. It's a, it's a great way to meet, you know, 30 other quarterbacks around, around you know, the NCAA and, and get to know them. So I went down the, two, the past or my last two years of college and, you know, got to know the Manning family, obviously, a little better through that. And a bunch of, bunch of quarterbacks – from, from, from college 
When you want to work on your passing skills, and by that I don't mean the timing and, and, and reading offenses, the mechanics of you throwing, yeah. what's your uh, primary set of exercises and work you do? Did you have a coach? When you got to the pros, did they come in, as they often do, and dissect your throwing motion and get into the whole mechanics of your throwing again? Not, not in the pros. They didn't. You know, I, think, I think there's a thought that if you've made it this far, don't, don't change your throw-on motion. You've they done didn't. it millions so of times. So it's not like Tebow where they're coming to you. No. I mean, you're not Tebow, but I'm saying people have the assumption that yeah. in the pros, they want to strip you down and say, okay, let's start all over again. But they didn't need to. They didn't feel they needed to reteach you how to throw the football. No, absolutely not. Right. Which, which I'm very thankful for because I, I, I don't think I would have handled it very well. <laughs> got, <laughs> you know? got, got and it. I think, I think quarterbacks are are very particular about their own motion and, right. and, and a little bit anal. You know, sure. this is the way I throw the ball. And right. This is the way it's because what pri- muscles do you think bunch. you had to develop? And if you wanted to improve yeah. when you were younger, when you added 25 yeah. pounds, when you wanted to muscle up and strengthen up, because uh-huh. I said to Joe Montana once, well, I was doing a film and Montana came to yeah. visit the director on the set. Cool. And I had the quickest, most fleeting conversation. It wasn't very real. I said to him, I go, what was your strength training? He said, I avoided weights as much as possible. I didn't want to get muscled up. He said, I took medical tubing. Yeah. Like hose, and I put a strap in a doorway, and I just did the throwing motion over and over, yeah. you know, like a thousand times yeah. with this tension thing to to strengthen the uh, the, the rotator, shoulder, and rotator shoulder. cuff. Yeah. And well, what exercises do you think you have to strengthen your legs and your back as much as your upper body to throw I do. football? I think uh, I think your core and your ass is is yeah. where so you much. You can't shoot a cannon out of a canoe. They yeah. say <laughs> where so much power is generated. Uh, and I think that's that's so a lot of leg training, a lot of leg training, a lot of weight core training, training or run training. Uh, I hate running, right. <laughs> but yeah, you, know, you, you have to do it. But I, I think it's more weight and just rotation. It's almost like golfers, you know. You're you're very one, and boxing and boxing. You're very one sided. It's almost like you throwing know? a right cross. You know what I mean? Because you, yeah, you, you throw that punch, you got to yeah, rotate that hip step, into the yeah, punch. No, yeah. absolutely. And 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 you become very one sided. You're always torquing in in the same direction. So making sure you're, to your you're, left. Yeah. So you're making sure you're evening out. You know, your right side of the body, right. uh, per se. But but I, I I and that's something that I that I learned more you know of in college and in the leagues you know how important your lower body is to throwing i would play in sandlot pickup games with my friends and of course when you play for fun with guys when you're when i'm in my 30s and 40s just for fun uh half the guys bring their own favorite ball (laughs) and the ball is deflated or inflated to the level they prefer the ball is scuffed to the level they prefer yes and when you pick up a ball in the nfl forget about weather conditions is the ball always a crisp waxy brand new ball or do they allow you to treat the ball the way you want to for your preference i I hate the crisp waxy so do i yeah i can't stand it can't stand it there's a our, our equipment managers for the Colts, uh, Frog, T, and Danny, th- three great guys that, that work with their quarterbacks. They have they have a top secret protocol for 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 the to treat the ball, treating the balls, and it, it, it's secret. They sure. won't tell me. I don't think they told yeah. Peyton when he left. I, I, I know what yeah. it is. By the way, I'm going to tell you. Please, it's they, they pee on it. It's their own <laughs> urine. They use their own urine to strip the waxy uh, film off. Who, who was the baseball player that used to pee on his hands to avoid calluses? Right? It was a Cubs player, like yeah. But but I know I've seen. So like, they have a patented top secret, it's like the formula for Coca Cola, and then the football's treated. But you do treat the ball. You do, and it's it, not out of the box. It's not out of the box, and, I, and I've seen different stages of it. Like I know, I know they put the balls in the the the, the, the sauna for like a, a couple minutes. That they're allowed to do that. Something about that. The league allows them to treat the ball. They, they do. 
They do. And do I, does every team get to use their own ball? Mm-hmm. Like we, when you come out on offense, we go get the box, we go open the crate of your opponent's balls. Everyone brings their own ball on yeah. the field as long as it's the approved ball. Yes. And, and, and from what I understand, it used to not be that way. It used to be like there was a certain, you know, all the balls for game day were open an hour before and, and each team used the same ball. But I think, uh, I think Peyton and, and Tom Brady sort of, this was before my time, I was sure. Let it, let a. Yeah coalition against that and yeah. got it changed where teams can use, you know, What use about the inflation balls. level of the ball? Does the ball have to be inflated to a certain pound? Uh, yeah, I, I think it does. And referees check it and they mark the balls off before sure, the, the balls game, have to which, be approved in one way, yeah. but you're allowed to treat the exterior of the ball. Yeah. That's amazing. So when you're there and you're throwing the ball, is it completely unconscious? Or when you throw the ball and, and you think you're ineffective, do you sometimes say to yourself, even at the pro level, that you've got to go back to a basic you've got to remember? You, you're bringing the ball in behind your ear. What are you going to do? What's the firing sequence in your yeah. mind of throwing a pass? Yeah, I think it, you don't want to think about you it. Don't, you don't, ever. You, no, you don't. And that's – well, I shouldn't say ever. When, when you st- if, you, if you're going on a string and, and balls are dying on you and you're saying, why, why – What if why? you're having a shitty day and you're not throwing the ball well? Yeah, I think that that's when you when – you, when you, Maybe not during the day. How do you but hit afterwards. the refresh button? Yeah, you look at the film and you say, "What am I doing different than, right. than, than and what I did?" Do you I see did? sometimes you did? Yeah, yeah, I think what so. What did you do differently? I think you know, look, you know, you're dropping the ball too low, and it's, right. and it's elongating your whole wind up. You know, it's almost like a pitcher now instead right. of a quarterback. You know, right. instead of throwing a football, uh, and, you, and, you know, and that's what's causing you to be late on all your routes. You know, make sure you right. know, try, so so that, that we can practice. You're going to work on keeping that ball, you know, higher and and and, and maybe shortening that that motion. Uh, so I think you you still tweak it every now and then if, if if it's not working out if you feel like it you know it's inhibiting you from being better. Um, for fans like myself, when we watch you play pro football and you're doing your job and you're just humming that ball out there, you're 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 hitting that ball first downs whatever, and the other guy drops the ball. <laughs> Does he come back and apologize to you? Uh, every now and then, D- different guys are different. Right. Uh, you know I. I probably apologize too much for throwing interceptions <laughs> to, to the guys on the lineup because I know they get fed up when they're blocking their butts off against yeah. some werewolf of a defensive end, and they're doing a great job. And oh yeah, their quarterback throws an interception. Good job, QB. Uh, but you know, some guys apologize, some guys don't. It's just the nature of the game that we're humans. You know, human errors occur. Being only human did not get in the way of Andrew Luck's record-breaking first NFL season. My next guest also had an extraordinary first season, 29 years ago. Dwight Gooden is known to baseball fans as the once brilliant 19-year-old pitching phenom from Tampa, Florida. He had a blinding fastball and a notoriously deceptive curveball. Those two pitches earned him the Rookie of the Year award in 1984. In 1985, he won the Cy Young as best pitcher in the National League. In 86, he led the Mets to one of their best seasons ever, ending with a World Series championship. Gooden still had some winning seasons after that, but nothing matched those first three years. Instead, his public battles with alcohol and cocaine became the dominant story of his career, leading sports historians to write about what might have been rather than what was. At the very least, Dwight Gooden's addiction ruined what should have been the greatest day of his life, the 1986 World Series win. After the game was over, I'm celebrating in the clubhouse with my teammates. Then I go on a bike in the trainer's room. I call my dad. We talk about the game, and he's happy, and we're celebrating. And then the next call went right to my friend who um, knew the dealer. And my friend was the go-to guy. Told him I was coming by a little later. And my goal was to go by there, get some drugs, 
and meet my teammates at a local bar after that. But unfortunately, you know, addiction what happened? It don't, it don't allow that. Right. So your friend, a friend that you knew, called the dealer for you to tee up the ball for you to go score. Well, what it was is um, I wanted a, a lot of stuff. I wanted to party and celebrate. Unfortunately, we went to the housing projects in Long Island. With the dealer? With the dealer. So I'm in there with about 10 people. I probably know two. That's a friend from Tampa and the dealer. So we're sitting there partying, having a good time. And now I'm thinking, I'll be here for maybe an hour, then I'm going to cut out. But once those rails hit the mirror. Yeah, once you start, yeah, it's, once you start you're done. Yeah, yeah it's and kryptonite. I, yeah, and that was always my track record. I'm just going to do a little bit. Then three days later, you're there doing the same thing. Dwight Gooden has been sober since 2011 when he went on celebrity rehab. And earlier this year, he published a deeply personal book entitled Doc, a memoir which chronicles everything from his complicated relationship with his father to his success on the field to his drug abuse and the toll it took on him. You come from an era when uh, drugs predominate as much as alcohol, or, or alcohol is one drug on a menu of drugs, because I mean, alcohol certainly is a drug. As you, as we, would you acknowledge that? Yes, 100%. Alcohol is definitely a drug, and the era I was in, what, like you say, before me was the heavy drinking, you know, in the 70s, what have you, and probably pot from what I hear. My era was basically, you know, cocaine and drinking. The alcohol was available in every clubhouse you go to, whether it was on the road or at home. And even at home, if they... And when you say alcohol was available, what was the kind of culture of that? Meaning, when the game was over, all professional ball players and management and coaching kind of acknowledged that when the game was over, we, we, we gave it our best, we're pro ball players, and we've earned a drink, and everybody has a drink. So they had a full bar there? Yeah, pretty much it was normal. Like, you go into the lounge where you got the food, you got the water and the drinks, and then you got the beer, and then the private stash in the back with the hard stuff. Especially, like, at the day game, we'll stand up because we want to wait for the traffic to die down. And we just sit around talking baseball, talking about the games, and just drinking. You started your professional career when you were how old? My professional career, I was 19. Well, I was drafted at 17. I uh, played a year and a half in the minors. I get to the majors at 19. And, and what was amazing was um, at the game, if we were on the road, it was always one of the veteran players say, Doc, you're pitching tomorrow. If I said no, they said, okay, you're out with us. And I remember this one time I did a commercial, Pepsi commercial with Catfish Hunter. And we're in Chicago at the day game. We go to this bar. And the commercial comes on, and the bartender's looking at the commercial. He's looking at me, looking at the commercial. Then he goes, I don't think you're old enough to be in here. <laughs> you know, so he said, I, you, could, you could hang around here, but I can't serve you any more alcohol. One of the traps of fame is everybody knows who you are, and the, <laughs> they know who you are on every level. But, but, but so how many games did you pitch the first season when you went? The first season, I think I had about 32 starts. You had 32 starts. Yes. So they were all in on you. They wanted you. Oh, they was there. Yes, definitely. You, in were, you were in the rotation. Yeah, I was in the rotation. I got uh, 17 wins, 17-9, made the all-star team my first year, right. led the league in strikeouts. And it was amazing because, as you mentioned— <laughs> When I first got there, it wasn't too much expectations, but after the All-Star break, it was a lot of expectations. It was more seats, I mean, more fans in the seats the days I would pitch. It was more media. How'd you feel? How'd you feel? At that time, I felt great, you know, because did I that felt— that get you high? It did. And then when you're off, you want to maintain that high. Yeah. How do you do that? Well, my first year, it was definitely a drilling rush, having all the fans there cheering for you, and you're striking out guys. And you're winning. And you're winning. It was no better feeling than that. Pitching against a lot of guys you analyzed just a year prior to that— and then the next year, 1985, I have an even better year. I have a career year. And, you know, you go out there, it was almost like being in What constant. did you do differently the second year? Were you just more confident? Second year, I was more confident. I had more relaxed? More relaxed. I had a, another year of experience under my belt. And Gary Carter came over that year. He was the you know, like all-star catcher for me, which is a big plus for me. What did Carter bring for you as a catcher that helped you? I think the way he communicated with me, he didn't want to just win. He wanted to dominate. And me... 
even though I want to dominate, but like say if I was winning a game two nothing, and then I or fifteen nothing, and I started just messing around with pitches, he would come out there and get in my face, said, you know, don't like nothing. Let's just go stick out these guys, you know. stick what you know. Let's totally dominate these guys. So when you're facing a batter. Have you pre-assessed before a game every single batter you're going to face in that game? You know what I should do? Um, we'll have the scout report saying, like, the way to pitch certain guys. But the thing was, I only had two pitches, fastball and curve. So a lot of times, <laughs> it's like, this guy's a great fastball hitter, and can't throw this guy curveball for strikes. And I'm thinking, well, I shouldn't be pitching. I'm done. You know, but basically, I always pitch to my strength and make the hitters adjust. So if you have—I'm not a baseball player. I love going to the, to the ball game. I love watching a baseball game live. It's a great treat. So you're standing there, and you're at the top of your game, and you look at in your mind an imaginary strike zone, the knees to the shoulders, you've got the home plate there. In those four corners, high and tight, high and outside, low and tight, low and outside, can you basically throw the ball on a fastball anywhere you want it? You can make it go where you want it to go. 1985, without a doubt. 1985, it was like from <laughs> the first game to the, you know, you my made, last you start. You picked your spot. I was just right there. You didn't have to think about it. Everything just came. And, and the ball would go where you made it go. Basically go right there. I was saying How many probably, miles an hour? Oh, I was anywhere from 95 to 98. 95 to 98 miles. Mm-hmm. Who's the fastest pitcher in baseball that you know of? Right now? Who, who was over time? At that time, time I was At saying, any time, who's been the fastest? I think Nolan Ryan. What, what did he throw, 99? They, supposedly, they say he topped out at uh, 103. Now you see these guys throwing 199, but also you have to remember all the new stadiums, they got the radar guns in there. They're turned up like three or four miles an hour faster just for the fans. And, oh, I see. And unfortunately, I found out the hard way. I went to <laughs> Cleveland towards the end of my career. The clock's got me at 96, 97. I'm thinking, wow, my fastball's I'm back. back. I'm, I'm back. back. <laughs> unfortunately, three innings. What did I have for breakfast today? Write it down. Ready to go. Unfortunately, three innings later, you know, I have given up seven runs, four home runs. Who knows how many hits. So now when I get knocked out of the game, I go in the room with the guy that keeps the uh, video, and then I see, like, 87, 88, 89. And I'm asking, what is these numbers here? He's asking your velocity. I say, out there, had me throwing 97. He said, no, no, I was turned up for the fans. So I found out the hard way. The, the, the little bit of show business. Thing. Yeah, so now when you see a lot of, the, a lot of these guys throwing 98, like 99. Like a laugh track in the comedy. Really, yeah, definitely. I know the feeling. Give me an example of a batter that always vexed you, that really just drove you crazy. Chili Davis, hands down. When he was with the San Francisco Giants, I was the Mets. He had me. It didn't matter if I was on top of my game or not. He would get hits off me. And he about, did. Yeah. What do you attribute that to? I think it was just, just the way you're both built. I think what he hit, was built to hit your ball. Yeah, I think he the way that. he was, he wasn't like um, intimidated by me because a couple of times I threw at his head to try to intimidate him. It didn't matter. He just would stay in. If I didn't have my good stuff, he was hitting home runs. If I had good stuff, he was getting base hits. So when you go high and tight, you do it to intimidate them. Most of the time, yeah. It's just you're not doing. You it. You want to brush them back, right? You don't want to hurt nobody or hit them in the head, but just throw them. You want to think. To start thinking and keep them from getting comfortable. But Chile didn't phase him, and it's it's weird because some hitters, when you talk to them, some pitchers. They just see the ball a lot better than other pitchers because, like, our number five starter, Chile couldn't get a hit off of him, but I'm, I'm like, the number one starter, and he's just wearing me out. How old are you now? Now I'm 48. Right, you're 48. I'm 55. And now, for you, I wonder, have you been able to kind of revisit, because you talk about your childhood, mm-hmm. and you talk about the contradiction, and you don't necessarily use that word. I, was very, I read it very carefully mm-hmm. when you talked about, you know, the kind of craziness in your household. Right. Your uncle. Mm-hmm. Shot your aunt in front of you. Well, it was my. Sister. It, it, it was your, it was your brother-in-law. Yeah, but brother-in-law you called him sister. Uncle. Yeah, G W. Uncle G W. Yeah, but he wasn't really your uncle. He was your brother-in-law. Brother-in-law from your much older sister. Yes. So you were six years old, and your sister was twenty years old. It yeah. was like a fourteen-year difference, if I read correctly. Right. So you're you're in that scenario, and this guy shoots your sister in the head. Yeah. Right in front of you. Yeah. You grab that baby, you run into the bathroom, and you lock yourself in the bathroom. Right. And I'm wondering, you talk about 
how much your dad cared about you mm -hmm. and how much your mom fought to hold on to your dad mm -hmm. and put up with a lot of shit from him. Right. And you watched all this. Mm -hmm. And you talk about the love you got and the support you got, but it sounds like your family, like much of my family, mm -hmm. there's love and support and a lot of good things, but there's a lot of nuttiness going on as well. Mm -hmm. And did you feel that that's what you needed to medicate yourself against? Sex, drugs, alcohol, all these things. Can you put your finger on why were you doing those things? Or was think, it just boredom? No, I think it was a situation of early on in my career, it was boredom. Like when I would come home, like in 1985, when I would come home from playing my season, most of my friends were still in school or they was working. So the boredom was there while I was just riding around, you know, drinking in the car, trying to pick up women. The ones that wasn't working in school were just hanging on the street corners, hanging out. And you came down there with a pocket full of money. Right. So we'll hang out. And everything was on Dwight. Yes, everything. So then... Like, after the 85 season in 1986, I started doing drugs in New York for the first time. It was more of the peer pressure. It was more of, of the media pressure and me putting pressure on myself. For example, everything was compared to 85. If I won a game, 3 nothing, complete game shutout. But if I only had, you know, five strikeouts, the first question would be, what happened? You only had five strikeouts. Yeah, they're picking you apart. So that's when I started medicating myself. Then it became pre-meditated where every game I pitched, after that game, I was going to get high. I was either going to get high to celebrate the win or I was going to get high because I didn't pitch that well to forget about the game. Right, to put the loss behind you. Right, and then, like, as you mentioned earlier about me, um, with, with my sister being shot, she got shot six times, and then one time she got shot in the head, the bullet's still actually in her head where she has seizures from it. When I grabbed my nephew and went in the bathroom, got in the tub, and I pulled curtain, thinking he's going to come in and get us next. The thing that was weird, I didn't find out until basically uh, 2011 when I was in my last treatment, Every time I would get high, I would always go to the bathroom, whether I was home by myself, whether it was a restaurant, whether it was whatever. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, I would go to the bathroom. These ghosts so, and these echoes of what we put up with. Definitely. So I totally relate to that, and I would go to the bathroom, and it was pointed out to me. Then I never realized that I put it together. You know, for me, I remember when I started to work, uh, oddly, when I was thinking about your life and your book, it's similar because I did a daytime TV show, a soap opera here in New York for a couple of years, and I went to L.A., and you get called up into the big leagues, right. so to speak. And then you start to make big league money. Mm. I mean, you and I have more in common than I thought because right. as I was reading the book, I realized that then I got called up to do other things and I started to make more money. And, you know, when I was focused on that work, I mean, the high that I got, I got high from the work. Yes. And when I would go home, there was this lull, you know what I mean? Like my adrenaline, I was, I was, I was high all day from the energy of being a young working actor. I went from one studio to the next. I'd audition for this movie. I'd get a part. In 1983 to 1985, that period was my white-hot period. Because mm -hmm. I'm in L.A., my dad died. Mm -hmm. My dad died of cancer. He was 55 years old, April of 1983. And I'm out there, and I'm booked, man. I'm, I signed deals. I mean, I can't come back. Mm -hmm. I go to work, and when I left work... I felt this tremendous kind of depression, like this kind of low, like I had to go do something else to get high. Did you feel that way? I had the same thing. My problem was trying to fill that void, like you were talking about. A lot of times the downtime of being bored is a dangerous spot for me to be in because I never had a hobby. When baseball season be over, now you come home to Tampa. You know, it's not like in New York you can go to concerts, you can go to plays, you can go to movies. The stuff to do with Tampa is totally opposite. Just come down. And there's nothing going on. Yeah. So I totally relate what you said. I will feel that time. You weren't taking photography classes down in Tampa. <laughs> no. <laughs> at the Tampa Institute of Tampa Photography. Institute. Yeah. yeah. So, so you come home, you got all this time, you got six months of um, the off season, four months before you start training, start hanging out at clubs, doing more drugs, and it was just basically trying to fill that void. 
and not knowing, you're thinking, this is fun. No, it, looking back at it, it wasn't fun. It caused more trouble than anything. Did money cause you trouble, too? Money caused me trouble, too. I would say— How much money did you make your first—I mean, this is all public record. How much money did you make your first season throwing in, in professional baseball? Not, not well, the AAA, not, not the farm. Well, I first got drafted. <clears throat> you first got drafted. I got 85000 85000 was your first season. For how long did that last? For uh, how many years? For— a year and a half, because then I was in the majors. Right. Then you went to the majors. And how much did they pay you? My rookie year, I think the minimum at that time was sixty thousand. But my rookie year, once after also break, I made more money off the field than I did my contract. How much money did you make off the field that year? I probably made about one point five, right. and then plus the, um, the minimum that I was getting the sixty thousand. So when did they renegotiate your contract with the Mets? Well, I didn't get a long term deal until nineteen eighty eight. At that point, I got like I think it was five point five million for three years, and at that point, it was the highest paid player at that time. Dwight Gooden also earned a 100-foot mural in Manhattan, which depicted the ace mid-pitch, arms outstretched, just about to launch a fastball. The giant image of Gooden looked down onto Times Square for 10 years. In a moment, Doc Gooden gets questionable advice from a doctor and takes it. This is Alec Baldwin. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market. 
as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Major League Baseball was hardly immune to the cultural excesses of the 1980s, and the 86 Mets were known as a hard-partying team. Even so, Dwight Gooden was able to set limits in a sense. I went from um, 87 to 94 with just drinking. How I did that, I have no idea, really? without using. I think part of me will help me do that because I was being tested. Right. And so, so talk about the, what it was like back then, the test policy. How did that work? Well, the test policy was once you uh, test positive for something or if you get in trouble some kind of way with alcohol or drugs. And you did. Then you get into the, this testing program. So how did they know you were in trouble with drugs and alcohol? Well, I went to rehab in 87. Right. Like, so describe uh, that. What happened? Obviously, in 86, missing the parade. Right. And I go to spring training in 1987. I'm doing coke, you know, not obviously doing the games, but I'm doing coke, like say that night. And in spring training, you have to be at the ballpark really early. So a lot of days I'm coming in there, I'm sure it looked like I've been up, you know, all day, all night. So then they call me in and say, you know, with all these rumors going, let's put the rumors to rest. Can we test you? I say, sure, you can test me because I know I hadn't did anything the night before. So obviously the test come back positive. So they give me an option. They say, you can go to rehab and we'll continue paying your salary or we can suspend you without pay. So that was easy. So I said, I'll go to rehab so I can continue being paid, even though still at that time I'm in treatment, but I'm still thinking I don't have a problem. So I was just marking days off the calendar to the third days was up. Get out of rehab. Now I'm bike working out with the Mali teams, and then when I get on the plane to go join the team, I'm right back to drinking. So from 87 to 94, I didn't, I didn't use the drugs, but I was still drinking. You know, so testing kind of scared you? Testing scared me, and plus it, it helped me for a little bit of period of time, but it was just a matter of time where I was going to go back because I was still drinking. And so, when, so when testing helped to keep you in line, and then after 94, it didn't. Right. Well, happened, where were well, you that season? What happened was um, in 94, the situation where, like I said, it was already premeditated that I was definitely going to use again, given opportunity. So in 94, the first game of the season, I break my toe. So I get put on a deal. So now I'm rehabbing, you know, getting back in shape. And so then when Doc's giving me clearance to start playing, I go down to the minor leagues just to get some innings in and build my arm strength up. And right away, the disease tells me, hey, they're not testing you down here. I can get high while I'm down here. I relapse. And now when I join the team in Cincinnati, there's the guy from Indy Baseball waiting to test me. He tests me. Obviously, it's positive. I get suspended. Then I go to uh, Betty Ford. I get out of there. So they wanted me to come back to New York to meet the uh, Major League Baseball doctors before I went to Tampa. All I had to hear was the one doctor says, why don't you just drink and don't do drugs? As soon as he said that, I'm thinking, even though I know, <laughs> even though I, know I shouldn't, I've been to two treatments at that time, and I know I can't drink. So I said, wow, maybe I could do it different this time. Now I'm on a plane flying home to Tampa to see my family. I'm drinking on a plane. I get off that plane. I don't see my family for three days. You pick up right where you left off. Definitely, definitely. You pick up right where, which yes. is what they say. For me, I, when I got sober, when I stopped drinking and I stopped taking drugs, which was many years ago when I was very young, it, it changed a lot of things for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really changed my attitude toward what I do for a living. Mm-hmm. I began to see the potential. I, I don't want to say that it made me uh, overwhelmingly cynical. That may be true, nonetheless. Right. But 
it definitely made me more thoughtful and it made me more aware of where there was the unhealthiness in a lot of things we do, relationships with people. You know, what, what was a healthy relationship? What was a healthy relationship with my family? Hmm. And what was your relationship like with your parents uh, now that you're rich and famous and, and honored and you have all these awards and you're coming apart? Like my mom, she didn't care about that fame. And still today, she, she can care about Did she come sport. and see you? Did you spend time with she, your mom? She would come up like during the season and see me, but she wouldn't. She maybe came to maybe two games. She came to one in Houston, my very first start. She came to the All-Star game in 1986. And maybe two starts in New York. My mom is a, a real Southern girl. She's from Georgia where they grow their own vegetables and fruit and, you know, work on the cotton field and all that stuff. So baseball, she enjoyed it more when I was a kid than professionally because she didn't like all the commotion. That went with it. Right. So for my dad, um, he kind of treated me the same. But at the same time, I mean, he was enjoying all the stuff that was going on. I mean, he, he liked that because... When I started playing baseball, initially it was his dream. Then it became my dream. And as I mentioned in a book where a lot of well, my parents, like they had me at a later time in the stage. Like I have five siblings, three brothers, two sisters, and I'm the youngest by 13 years. Yeah. So I came later on. So um, obviously I was a spoiled kid. My mom was very strict, you know, very direct with stuff. When my dad kind of gave me a pass with a lot of things as long as I was yeah. playing baseball. Yeah. Without naming names, uh, obviously, would you say that Drug usage, I mean, alcohol, It's uh, that's always been the case throughout history. But would you say that drug usage, and particularly cocaine usage, well, what, what was the cocaine and drug usage like among professional athletes during the from, from when you started to when you finally got sober in 2000? Yeah, I think that um, obviously in the 80s it was, it was available pretty much any time you wanted it. And a lot of people you knew were doing it. There's a lot of people doing it. And unfortunately— the 86 Mets got labeled as a, a party team. Right. At that time, in the early 80s, all teams was partying. But because we were successful and was in New York, we got pointed out. Um, a lot of stuff they said was true. But other teams and their police were doing the same thing. I think— um, Who was a person that didn't party who was kind of a straight arrow? Who was the Boy Scout on the team who would come up to you, if any, and wag their finger in their <laughs> face and say, shame on you, yeah. don't you do that? We had several guys that didn't drink and didn't party. But they never, like, pointed a finger or thought this was better. Or, so no one came to you like a, like a patriarchal figure and put his hand in you and said, hey, man, you got to slow down. No, prime example, uh, Gary Carter, great guy. I mean, a tri- Straight arrow. Obviously, he was a great player, but even a better person off the field. He never drink. He never hung out with us or anything like that. Like, he would go out to eat with us, but once we were saying, we'll go out on the strip, he said, okay, if you guys need me or whatever, I'm in my room. But they say we'd come in with the red eyes, you know, you hung over. He never judged you. He just said, yeah. you know, you're okay, everything's good, you had a good time. Good. Yeah. Okay, let's get back to work. And that was it. Yeah. Um, what do you say to your kids? Your kids are how old? My kids are from 3 to 27. So you um, have kids that know who, how, your top three oldest are how old? 27? Yeah, 27, 23, 21. Then I have an 18 and 16. Right, so of, from 16 and above, let's say. Uh, what do you say to them when they, because they know all about you. It's in the book. They know all about me with the book. And even before the book came out, I would talk to my kids um, when they drink whatever. I said, look, Use me as an example. Uh, I, like I, my older kids, when I got to the point, felt comfortable. I had to talk with them. I said, basically, to tell you how powerful drugs and alcohol is, I basically divorced you guys and your mother for drugs. Yeah. I said, so just picture that. I said, you guys know how I felt when I wasn't around. That's how insidious it is. Right. And when I wasn't at your school activities, when I wasn't at your game, or if I was there, I really Did you miss a lot of that? Miss a lot of that. And I say, just think what that did to me. And I said, and you guys know my heart. You, you guys know the type of person I was. I said, but once you get involved with that, you're not the same, and not only do you hurt yourself, but you hurt your loved ones. Like Did they I, forgive you? Like I hurt you guys, yes. That was one of the things, they forgave me. 
all they want me to be is healthy and be accountable to them. I don't make any promises to them, obviously, but I'm always there. I talk to them daily now. What are you doing with yourself now? Now I um, I see my eight-year-old son. He plays baseball and football. Where I, is he? In Inglewood Cliffs. He's here. When I have the opportunity, I help coach his team. I do work with the Mets and Yankees. Um, I couldn't do that when Mr. Samuel was living. It was only Yankee or nothing. So now, unfortunately, he's passed. I get to work a little bit with both teams. I do that. Uh, do a lot of stuff with the youth program. And my true passion is anything with kids. Right. Your dad died when? Uh, he passed away in 1997. 1997. Where were you when your dad died? Actually, um, I was in Tampa when it happened. Um, actually, the last game my dad saw me pitch was a no-hitter, and I talk about that in the book where right. uh, he had he had been struggling for a while with his kidney failure, his own dialysis for like 15 years. His health was deteriorating, and they felt he had to have emergency heart surgery. They felt if he didn't have the surgery, he probably wouldn't last a month or two. And even if he had the surgery, it can't guarantee he's going to last a month or two, but he definitely had to have the surgery. The day that pitched no hit, I was supposed to fly home to build him that day because I was having the surgery the next morning. I had my flight reservation and everything, but uh, when I woke up that morning, you know, I remember taking a shower and brushing my teeth, and I just started reminiscing of all the days we spent at the park, him teaching me the drills, me and him going to the spring training games, me and him watching games on TV. What did you learn from him? I learned from him, like, how to pitch. Basically, I knew everything I knew, learned about baseball was from him. Um, and What did you learn from him as a father? As a father, is putting family first. Right. Understanding. You believe he did that? Yes, definitely. Yeah. Understanding. In his uh, way. In his way, yeah. I mean, he might have didn't live it, but just telling me, you know, family comes first, family values, set a good example for your kids as well. So that day, I felt he'll probably— But in some ways, he didn't set a good example for you. Well, with the womanizing or whatever. <laughs> but that's, that's what I'm saying. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if sometimes that's part of what happened was you trying to make peace with those two. Because that's where I came to in my life. Once I got sober and I started to examine what was bothering me, what I began to realize was that my parents were people. Yeah. Did yeah. you find that that was a part of what ate at you? No. Um, the contradictions inside your dad? With, with him, no, I would say not at all. Um, he was there, like a lot of things that he was doing, I thought was a normal. And you became thing. a womanizer. Yeah, I became a womanizer. And yeah. the thing my dad was doing with the drinking, whatever, like I never actually saw him with the women, whatever. So right. he kept it all the way from house. Sure. My parents never argued in front of me. So I just right. thought it was. You know, everything was great. So you sang that song, Daddy's Got a Girlfriend. Right. <laughs> you outed yeah. your father. He, he wouldn't give me a water or something, so I threw him <laughs> under the bus. Yeah. <laughs> you, actually, you accidentally threw him under the bus. That's, yes. a, that's a wild thing you described in the book. Oh, yeah, that's really, really cool. You, you, you did the Dr. Drew thing what year? That was uh, 2011. So you went back because you went out again. Yes. And you went out when? You were sober from when to when? From the last time, from uh, 2010, I was very active in my addiction when I was going through this divorce. But you were sober 2000? Yes, 2000. Till when? 2000 um, to 2003, and then I went back out. Then I was basically in, in, and, out. in, in and out of my addiction until from 2003 2011. to 2011. Yes. So you're in and out for eight more years. Yes. And you got busted? Uh, 2010, yes. Yeah, 2010, you got busted where? Well, what happened was um, in Franklin Lakes in New Jersey. I had um, got charged with child endangerment where I took Ambien the night before. I woke right. up to take my son to school and obviously hit a car. Yeah. And they wanted to get me out and do the field sobriety test, which as they were talking to me, I'm dozing off. Yeah. And you must have taken a couple of Ambien. Yes. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> Sounds like you took more than one Ambien. Right. So then you get charged. Get charged. And it's child endangerment because you were in a vehicle with a child. Yes. How old was the child? My son at that time, that was 2010. Yeah, he would have been five. So you were married to your wife then? Yes. You were newly married almost. Yes. 
And uh, what happened? Did you go to prison? To jail, rather? No. Got no prob- time. No time. Got probation, and I went. that's why I went to the Dr. Drew show. What, 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 what did you think was unique about that? What helped you about that? Going to Dr. Drew? Yeah. I did think it help you? It, it definitely helped me, but I think the thing was I was ready to get help. The times right. before I went to treatment, I was just basically there doing my time. As you know, in treatment, what you put in is what you get out. I was just ready. It was a time in my life where I knew I had been to you know rehabs, I've been to institutions, I've been to jail, I've been to prison. The only thing waiting was the cemetery. When did you go to prison? I went to prison in 06. For? For uh, a technical violation for it was a relapse. How long were you in there? Ten and a half months. What was that like? Horrible. I mean, Where that was you? horrible. In Gainesville, Florida. That was horrible. Anytime you get locked up, incarcerated, is well, horrible. What facility? You were in a state but, prison? But, but going there at the age 40 is horrible. State prison? Yes. You were in a state prison in Gainesville, Florida for 10 months? Yes. And they all knew who you were? Yes. And did all, like, the biggest, t- I mean, I'm, I'm making a joke here, but, did, like, the biggest, toughest guys in the prison who could probably beat the crap out of you come up and tell you that they would protect you if you taught them the secret of how to throw the, the fastball? <laughs> I didn't get into that. Did you but, take uh, a ball and, like, show them how the fingers go over the laces and they leave you alone? No. There was no you you, you was look at some guy and go, all right, listen, uh, Ray, I'm going to show this to you one time, and then that's it. And I want you to promise me you're going to leave now, me alone. And there you find out the first day you're there, you're just a number. You're not even a name. It's really? horrible. Yes. Did you become friends with it? Did you have any? What kind of well, a time did a you couple, have? There was a couple guys that I knew from as kids that I hadn't seen since childhood. <laughs> and you found them in prison. there. Found them in there because they've been in and out their whole life. Jesus. So, but that didn't help the time go by fast. It was just a horrible, horrible time, horrible experience. And when you got out of there, how did you feel? It was different, and I totally agree. Um, a guy was telling me when guys get incarcerated and you're there for basically ten months or longer, it takes that same amount of time when you get out to get back to yourself. Yeah. And I found that once I got out, I was still living like I was a prisoner. I wouldn't go anywhere. I was just staying in the house. I was just, you know, basically doing time mm-hmm. on the street. So it was a horrible, horrible time to I can get comfortable. Who again. helped you? I had uh, started going to the meetings. After that, I uh, got a sponsor. This guy, Ron Doc, who now works. That's when you first went to meetings after that? No, I went to meetings before. Right, got it. But I just got totally locked in. So back meetings. into the program, the program saved you. Yeah, they got me going and got me, you know, feeling good about myself again. How was your wife? Is she cool about it? No. Support, no. Okay, no. No, that was, <laughs> that was a tough time. Yeah, that was tough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a story for another day, but yeah. uh, it was okay. It's a tough thing, though. You know? It's, oh, a it's tough very thing. tough. That's, yeah. what, that's the thing I tell my kids. It's tough not only on you, but it's tough on your, all your loved ones. Yeah, you it's put everybody tough. else through it. Yes, you definitely. Know? A lot of stuff is on their times. So you can't have them forgive you on your time because we'll do it like right now. So they have to work through their things and get to a point where they accept what happened. We can't force them. That's the thing that I found out. For all his years in baseball, Dwight Gooden says he's more of a football fan. And during football season, his Sundays are pretty routine. He goes to church, attends a meeting, and then spends the rest of the night watching the game. Who's your team? Giants. Big giant fan. I get a lot of heat from my friends down in Tampa. Take a listen to our archive. More in-depth conversations with artists, policymakers, and performers, like opera singer Renee Fleming. People will go to sports events and scream at, you know, the other team or even their, the people they like, and they're hoarse the next day. We can't do that. We're doing the same thing, but we're doing it in a trained way. And you know, it is a hard art form to get right. But when it's right, it's, it's amazing. Hear more from two celebrated singers, Renee Fleming and Radiohead's Tom York at heresthething.org. Here's the Thing is produced by Emily Botine and Kathy Russo with Chris Bannon, Jim Briggs, Ed Herbstman, Melanie Hoops, 
Monica Hopkins, Trey Kay, Sharon Mashihi, Zach McNeese, Cambra Moniz Edwards, and Lou Olkowski. Thanks to Larry Josephson and the Radio Foundation. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.